Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. In global markets, are raising a loss of as much as 2% on the S&P 500 for only the fifth time since this bull market started back in 2009. Wang in, Steve Whiting, City Private Bank, Chief Investment Strategist. Good morning to you, Steve. Good morning. Your thoughts on the swings through this week. Wow. So look, I think this is the residual effect of the trade war heating up, the countermeasures in the currency markets, uh, the fact that uh, markets who had fixated on a seven reading being some magical number for the Chinese currency, uh, for example, is trying to get used to it. And just looking back to other market events uh, where we've had turmoil in currency markets spill over to other asset classes. So there may not be a lot of news at the moment uh, on this and markets have calmed down a bit, but we're still sort of in the aftermath of, uh, of that big surge in volatility. And perhaps not as fixated with the Chinese currency fix night by night by night. I mean, last night, everyone's standing by waiting for something. We got a seven handle on the fix for the first time since 2008. Maybe that was the headline for about five minutes. But really the story, it's tracking the spot rate quite tightly. It is stronger than pretty much every single analyst that we survey here at Bloomberg. And I think the signal coming from the Chinese at the moment is that we want a stable currency. And let's be clear here, that's very much a selfish motive. That is what the Chinese want. Well, that's absolutely right. This is not a situation of China sort of saying, we will no longer control our currency. We will completely subject this to market forces, come what may. Uh, and if the trade war takes us to uh, a remarkable uh, outflow of savings from, from China, that's not where they're going to go on this. That's not the immediate outlook. But I do think that you do have some depreciation pressures. And China has signaled, in fact, uh, that its currency uh, will adjust uh, as one of the ways in which, uh, if you want to call it retaliation or adjustment, you know, for this particular pressure on, yeah. on, on, on the tariff front. You know, it's Thursday, John. And, you know, I was off on Monday. It was my first vacation day of the year. And, um, you know, you were here holding the fort down on Monday. Didn't you go to Jamaica this year? I did actually. It's good. Just outside. There's, been a, there's been a couple of vacations. It, it, it's, it's no, it's all like on the oh, Long Jamaica, Island. You went to Jamaica, Queens. Yeah, Long Island River. Okay. Um, after seeing the Mets um, lose, now they're all winning. Um, but John, what's so important here? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. The note of the morning for me is Greg Vallier, AGF, who says, "Look, everybody, including in Steve Whiting's world." is waiting to see what the White House will do. And Greg's entire note is on, is the somebody quoted last night brilliantly, the Navarro recession, the idea of what we're doing on trade. Steve, how does Citigroup fold in everybody waiting to see what the president does next into the sweat you face of what do I do with my equity investments? Well, this, this is really important. We were um, trying to say on the television earlier, for example, that whatever the political pressure there may be on the Fed, uh, Chairman Powell has said, we are the takers of trade policy. And I doubt that they have any great insight at the Federal Reserve what's next. Will they do something because they expect 
uh, the trade situation to yeah. worsen or not. No, they won't. They won't do anything. And the reality is, is that we have to build an asset allocation around the view that there are larger trade risks than we would have had in previous years. That's why, again, we've taken some evasive action in both fixed income and equities markets, but we'll also have to fold when that is priced into markets into that the opportunity as well. And John, that's classic Steve Whiting, that keyword takers, which is out of derivatives and swaps, and that nobody has a choice here. The Fed is a taker of what we see from the White House. We had a bit of pushback earlier this week, though. We had that pushback from Bullard of St. Louis when he said he did not want to get drawn in for the tit-for-tat in trade. Yeah. I didn't hear that from Evans of Chicago just yesterday. So there seems to be a bit of a difference emerging on the FOMC on how we should respond to the recent escalation. It's early days. We still have Jackson Hole. We will hear from a right. lot of Fed speakers, Steve. But just your base case right now as to how the FOMC will respond or won't respond to the gyrations in this trade dispute. I, I think Chairman Powell was pretty clear on this aspect in, in the press conference, and that might have disappointed markets. They are not going to, to just simply ease unconditionally, preemptively, creating all, you know, first of all, I don't think that the ability for the Fed to create an economic boom independently of all of this is really there. Um, but they're not going to say that we're going to just load up uh, with all sorts of ammunition, power up the economy so that we can absorb a larger trade issue. No, it's not that. Um, that they will, in essence, though, if they face deflationary macro circumstances, external shocks, and they consider trade policy yeah. an external shock, they will react to it. That's what Powell said. What is your weighting or, or change in weighting of U.S. domestic versus global equity investment right now? Um, there have been some minor changes, for example, for us have, you know, reduced uh, a bit of an, uh, first of all, we've been a little bit cautious because of uh, anticipated trade friction. And that so took us in June um, to expect things to be a bit worse. Um, we thought, for example, that we would have tariffs in place when uh, these additional tariffs now in place uh, when Trump and she met. Um, but now they've come in a delayed fashion. So we were um, a little bit early in terms of putting a bit of caution in on that. What we did, though, I would say, just giving all of that, is that take up small caps slightly, reduce our underweight uh, in U.S. Mm -hmm. domestic small caps. But, you know, this is a situation, again, like we were talking about earlier on the television, where there's pervasive effects across all financial markets. This is not a view of a surgical strike here. If this was about very, very specific Chinese commercial uh, policies, uh, on the trade front, we might have seen a different market response around the world. But the view that there is ultimately a trade war with Europe, there's uh, issues with all sorts of other uh, trade Japan, partners South with the United Korea, States. Means within exactly. themselves, there are other skirmishes yes, going on new around ones, the world. New ones uh, coming. Exactly. We've got to Japan, establish Korea. some parameters to try and work through and make some decisions, a range of probabilities. I would say the consensus view right now, as the week grows older, it is a tail risk that China lets the currency go. That is the tail risk. The base case is that the trade risks don't diminish. For a lot of people, that's the Correct. consensus view. Is that your view as well, Steve? Are they the parameters that you operate in right now? I think that that's very close that we have to think about the base case. And then again, within your asset allocation, you must have you know, some room for things to not go as you plan. So what are the securities, what are the asset classes that you want to allocate capital to that retain the risk mitigating characteristics that you need if things don't go to plan? So very clearly, U.S. investment grade debt. 
uh, or U.S. dollar investment grade debt because you can allocate across some higher and lower risk assets within that. You can have some 30-year U.S. treasuries, but yes, you can in fact also have uh, some higher quality emerging markets, long-term U.S. Bo dollar bonds, but at a lower weighting. Um, so, but the other side of this, which is interesting, is that we've always said, well, you know, an asset like gold, right, uh, has the problem that it doesn't give you yield and you'll be foregoing the income uh, for the if you own this asset. And yet you take a look at Europe where you have negative yield bonds uh, and you have to say, well, wait a second, I can actually improve my, my relative Steve, income position with gold. This is really important. The opportunity cost of owning gold has diminished massively through 2019. Is that the basic argument? Oh, that's the basic argument. And, and look, you know, this is a more volatile asset class. But when you've had things like 30 year European negative yield bonds have a sort of a 10% price jump in the month, you know, you must have to consider that again, you know, yeah. gold does not have that move. And again, that's one currency pair. This is not a story necessary for US dollar investors. Yeah. You know, the environment for gold, if the US currency were crashing, would be much stronger, which is not the expectation we no. have. Right we're going to let you go before we ask you if Bitcoin's a gold proxy. Stephen Whiting, thank you hey, so thanks, much. Steve. Thank with you. Citigroup today. walk in the door, John, that we think are unexpected, and it would be good. He's got his I was deck shocked. here. I was he, shocked. He's got, his, he's got his Goldman Sachs deck. How thick which is, is the deck? It's about 142 pages. He's brought 142 yeah, pages you know, into the Abby, Abby shows up with the back of an envelope, you know, and some pen scratch on it. And I saw his name in the rundown. I didn't <clears throat> actually think he'd turn up. Well, but he's know, here, and I'm pleased here. to say David Costin is with us, Goldman Sachs Chief Equity Strategist. Good morning to you, David. Good morning, gentlemen. Let's talk about earnings just quickly, shall we? A lot of people said Q1, worst is behind us. And then they started to look at Q2 and said, maybe it isn't. Then there were the fears of an earnings recession. Just where are we? Frame that for us, David. Where are we right now? The earnings realized and the earnings you expect are still to come. So we have the earnings for the second quarter, which are pretty much uh, finished right now. About 90% of the companies in the market have uh, reported flat for the year. Year on year, second quarter last year versus second quarter this year. Uh, flat earnings, and that's a little bit better than expected. Expectation going in to the quarter results were uh, were probably down one to two percent. But if you really focus on what's going forward, we're looking for around three percent earnings growth for this year, 2019, compared with 2018. So about three percent earnings growth this year. Uh, that'll accelerate to around six percent next year. You have been a calm voice for decades, saying you have to participate in the markets. Here's a way to do it with courage. What I see on the screen, and this is with great respect for some of the catharsis Monday, is SPX is down all of 4.1% from the recent peak. Have we forgotten, David Costin, how to take losses? No, I think we have to think about the concept that valuation has been the principal driver of the market for this year. So the earnings for the market are pretty much coming in as expected. P is um, up. And, uh, and the multiple has gone from 14 times to 18 times at the peak, which you just referenced, which is less than uh, a month ago at 3,025. And now we're down uh, from, that, from those levels. So here's how you wanna think about it. You wanna think about it in the sense that bond yields are like 175. Flip the reciprocal. Okay, flip the reciprocal. The earnings yield is 6%. 
6% right now. And so that yield gap, that difference between the earnings yield and the bond yield is one of the widest it's been in years. Yeah. At north of, how does it close? What's the partial differential of how you close bond yield and equity yield? So if we want to think about it, we're about 425 basis points yeah. yield gap right now. And the long-term average is about 230. So that well above that, we're closer to where we've been in the peak of the financial crisis in terms of the 500 basis points kind of a, a yield gap. So that's the number one issue to think about in the sense of valuation of various asset classes. And bond yields are so low, clearly the, uh, the issues on trade are front and, uh, and center for, for so many uh, portfolio managers, and appropriately so. And so the way you want to think about this is to own the services companies, companies that are services providing as opposed to goods producing. So your goods producing, you're subject to tariffs, you're subject to retaliatory tariffs, you have higher input costs, you've got concerns about that. As an investor, you own services-based companies, they are less sensitive to that, they have more stable gross margins, higher, higher, uh, higher margins. So as you know, David, the one thing the Federal Reserve are really worried about, and central banks seemingly worldwide, including the ECB, is that the weakness you see in manufacturing, the goods providing companies, bleeds across the services anyway. Are you saying that's unlikely to happen? or the effects of it will be limited? Well, the effects, I would argue, will be somewhat more limited, principally because 70% of the U.S. economy is services, and that is uh, driving what's domestically facing. And uh, concern is certainly uh, relevant to think about what's happening with, uh, with manufacturing uh, in this country, but the services is really what's driving the economy. You've made a lot of headlines in the last couple of weeks. You came out with a year-end 2020 forecast, and I recall you dropped your EPS forecast but mm -hmm. raised your price target and you believe that we could get some multiple expansion through 2020 make sense of that for the people who don't believe in that story that we well, could get some multiple expansion from the S&P 500 still through next year so the way to think about this is uh, as I said the start of 2019 market multiple was 14 times forward earnings Peaked at around 18 times a month ago, we're around 16 and a half, 16.5 times forward earnings. And the Fed is likely to cut interest rates at least twice, two more times this year, once in September, once in October. So the rates in bonds are likely to go, to go lower, in, uh, in my view. And then we look into next year, the idea of multiple expanding to maybe uh, 16 and a half to, to 18 times, kind of going back to where well, we were before. Let's get an update then on your call in equities and also Goldman Sachs fixed income. Jan Lowy's at J.P. Morgan headlines. Jakob Fels at PIMCO headlines. Steve Major, HSBC, uh, with a shocking boon call of a negative 0.81%. What's the Goldman Sachs adjustment towards a zero bound in the United States? Do we get to a 0% tenure? No. The uh, expectation is somewhere between around 175 at the end of this year, one, one and three quarters. Uh, perhaps a little bit lower if the Fed cuts rates mm -hmm. uh, two more times than mm -hmm. we're expecting. But... Uh, but <clears throat> not significantly lower than we are currently. What do you do? Uh, when the expectation is we're unlikely yeah. to have a recession. I, and basically, if think about it, unemployment rate below 4%, wages, right. real wage growth is happening for the first time in 20 years. Uh, and that's not as consistent with a recession in the so, past. Where are the imbalances? I know, David Costin, your minimum account is $400 million. Talk to one of our listeners now with a smaller account. They're sweating, particularly after Monday. Do you adjust a retail 401k account here in equities? Is this an opportunistic moment? Is it a moment to be in the markets with courage or do you enjoy being in cash? 
No, the idea, the answer would be to still be in the equity market at this, uh, at this juncture, given that the economy is likely to continue to grow. It's growing in part because the Fed's mandate is to keep it growing, and it's likely to be cutting interest rates a couple more times to maintain an expansion, and that's more consistent right. with earnings growth, and positive earnings growth is what generally yeah. leads the market higher. John, my head's spinning. This is too optimistic. It's very constructive. It's very constructive. Well, I mean, he has been is, through the year, yeah, and the year has been good so far. David Costin, I think we've got to let you go because I understand you've got to oh, run to another studio. Is that <clears throat> another right? Another property? That's why I didn't think he was going to drop by, so I'm very happy he gave us some oh, of his time. David Costin, thank you so He's much. He's got a great colour as well. Thank you, gentlemen. Look very healthy. He's look, you know. He looks great. Right now, we are thrilled to bring you Sonia Meskin, uh, U.S. economist, of standard charter sonia you have a huge standard charter advantage and that you get to walk in every day and talk to stephen englander he is a giant of foreign exchange dynamics how do you dovetail your u.s economics work with the foreign exchange analysis of mr englander in the last five days well, um, it's really uh, very true. It's really been very much about the foreign exchange. But, you know, the U.S. is actually uh, quite an isolated economy. And I think that uh, the labor market, for one, shows that very clearly. Uh, we see uh, definitely signs of um, weakness and ongoing weakening, both uh, globally in Europe, in Asia. Uh, but we don't really see it so much in the U.S., except in the manufacturing-related manufacturing right. sectors. Um, so I think it's very important, in fact, you know, and the dollar, of course, um, plays a role in the Fed's reaction function, but it's really not uh, even amongst the first three uh, key elements, I think, that they look at. Sonia, do you uh, see any sign at all that the weakness in manufacturing, though, is starting to come across, bleed through to the other parts of the economy? It's a question that we keep asking on this program, and so far a very, very, very limited, limited amount of people turn around and say, yes, I'm seeing a sign. Sonia, do you? That's true. I would agree with that because even in the latest NSP report, manufacturing gained jobs more so than in the previous month. Um, so I think we see it in some of the sentiment indicators, and that's been the consistent theme throughout the last nine months. But the sentiment indicator data has not been as strongly correlated with what's actually going on on the ground as maybe in some of the previous periods. This goes back to a question we often ask Sonia, which is whether the fear that something is about to get worse can translate into the very real idea that it will happen. So it becomes reality, the prospect of something. So the soft data becomes the hard data, so to speak, Sonia. Is that what you anticipate? Um, I think the U.S. economy is very resilient, but I do think that there are certain cross-currents now that we haven't experienced before. China is obviously a much bigger part of the global economy than it was um, even a decade ago. Um, of course, mm -hmm. what's going on in the foreign exchange markets, um, as you can see, is uh, somewhat unprecedented. Um, and I think the impact on money markets, for example, is um, evident already. Um, so there are definitely elements, I think, within the markets uh, to pay attention to that are sort of critical. But the, uh, the chances of those spilling over into the real economy um, in short order, I don't think are necessarily very high. Well, the rate cuts, I mean, with Standard Charter's expertise in EM, will the rate cuts we see from EM central banks affect U.S. central bank policy? 
Well, I think it's really the other way around. The Fed really opened the door for them to cut. Um, and mm-hmm. while there is, of course, an, um, uh, an outstanding argument as to whether the Fed needed to cut at all, and you saw two dissents um, uh, on the committee uh, following that decision, um, I think uh, for the emerging markets, um, in, in terms of the economics, um, it's something that is needed. Of course, it also introduces... Uh, um, you know, uh, issues with the capital flight account potentially down the road. Uh, so, but so far, I think it really opened the door for them. Wonderful. Sonia Meskin, thank you so much with Standard Charter. In our studios right now, is Annie Massa, who goes to the coolest French major in America, at Vassar, French and Francophone Studies. That's perfect. It's like this totally cool <laughs> program. When, when I was a kid, it was like a big deal. What is it like doing French and Francophone Studies at Vassar College? Well, it was just an obvious step in my career path towards becoming a business journalist. <laughs> did, you walk, did you feel like you French. walked in dumbest French speaker in the class? <laughs> it I mean, was a great program, I've got to yeah. tell you. I spent... Uh, a semester in Paris. Yeah, I lived it up. It's I don't have enough good things to say about that program. Yeah, so you, it's very cool. I mean, we get all these kids in here with academic backgrounds. You've got a home run here with Susie Waite and Christopher Cannon on the state of asset management. Abby Johnson came out and said, we're going to give away certain funds. You mentioned Will Danoff, Contra Fund, Fidelity Contra Fund, and even the, the sainted Will Danoff is having outflows. It's that grim, right? That's right. So we took a look at the $74 trillion global asset management industry and some of the challenges that are uh, that the biggest asset managers What's the biggest are challenge facing, right now? facing. So the biggest challenge is really for active managers. There's a bit of a crisis of confidence as you see these outflows from actively managed funds, even from those that are beating their benchmarks. Um, so it's a real watershed so, moment. Well, it's a, I totally agree with the point. It's a watershed moment. We saw it in Davos uh, this year with active managers. They've gone through this plan, plan B, plan C, plan D. What's the plan into autumn and into 2020 to staunch the flows? Well, I think one plan that asset managers are rapidly realizing um, that they have to take on is you have to figure out what your raison d'etre is. See, French major. Oh, man. <laughs> um, so you, you have know, to figure I out. What... I would have pronounced it, Rich. I would have said raison d'etre. <laughs> that's what I would have said. Continue. Yeah, that's what my very expensive <clears throat> education taught me. So you've got to be on one end of the spectrum or the other. You've got to um, really either have a full comprehensive offering or you've got to be a niche-focused boutique player. And for those in the middle, it's really a, a difficult moment. So give us a sense of the flows into the asset management business, kind of where the money's going, active passes, all that kind of trends. Sure. So as we trace in our data viz, for years you've seen outflows from active mutual funds and you've seen inflows into passive indexed products. So this is one of the major um, trends of the past uh, decade or so. Has that trend asset- changed? 
management industry. It hasn't so far. And so you're seeing this scramble to figure out, okay, uh, what can, you know, what can we offer? Does it mean getting into ETFs? Does it mean getting into factor-driven products? Yeah, but are they going to merge? I mean, Aberdeen Standard over in Europe, you got a beautiful Europe angle with a Monday uh, in the article as well. This is in Bloomberg Business Week, folk. Asset managers with $74 trillion on brink of historic shakeout. Okay, great. What's the plan? That's what I don't get. So that's a good question. So uh, consolidation is definitely part of the plan for many of these firms. You saw Invesco and Oppenheimer funds merge, for How's example. How's that going? And that has combined a very passive business with an, a more actively focused business. So that's one that's for sure interesting to watch. Okay, but what's a gossip on a transaction like that? Forget, you know, come on. <laughs> Nobody's listening, okay? What's a gossip? <laughs> okay, well, so one other thing that we mentioned in this story on, on the consolidation front is you look at Janice Henderson and Standard Life Aberdeen, yep. and you're actually seeing outflows in the wake of those mergers. So it's not a sure thing that just merging to survive is going to you know lead you down the path towards um salvation right so is are we going to eventually get what percentage let's start this way what percentage of the money today roughly is actively managed versus passive so it depends and we have got a chart that um breaks it down so the u.s is the Andy, biggest the mic percentage. is over there stay on the mic <laughs> oh, sorry guys is this better yeah. <laughs> so in the u.s you've got 33 percent of um in passive funds and that's where it's largest so but that and that's growing right and that's growing now is there a, is the bear case scenario where that goes where the active manage goes to zero is anybody i mean why wouldn't it why would i pay a fee for performance that's not materially better than what I can get in a passive? That's a good question. I, I mean, I think an active manager would tell you at a certain point, if everyone's an indexed product, it will make it, you know, people will logically say, hey, wait, it should be easier to out, outperform with an active manager. So maybe you won't see it go okay. to zero, but at this point, the trend um, <clears throat> isn't yeah. really abating. This is so cool. Yeah, uh, not it's not cool if you're up in Boston or in those big mutual fund complexes. No. I, I, I don't the economics, the fee pressure, just must be extraordinary. Guillaume, in, uh, Guillaume sends in an email from Paris, listening. Andy, you got a global audience happening to this. He's I'm going to butcher this. I'm going to try. Je tellement fini avec des frais élevés. Merci beaucoup, Guillaume. C'est très sympa. C'est d'accord? Oh boy, Rich, help me. <laughs> okay. I was not expecting that. We're killing that it in Montreal Blue? today. <laughs> no, but seriously, I believe what he's saying is I'm so done with high fees. That's all this debate comes down to, right? That's right. So, yeah, part of the reason that you've seen this uh, interest in index products particularly in the aftermath of the financial crisis in 2008, is investors are reassessing, okay, how much am I just paying in fees? And is it worth it instead to go for an index product that will charge less? So if I'm Fidelity, um, you know, this huge mutual fund complex, what is the stated strategy of a, of a Fidelity, for example? What are these big companies that are have such great brand names, that have got such tr tradition? Um, what is their strategy? Fidelity is an interesting one. They are definitely trying to catch people's attention in a couple of ways. So last year, Fidelity kind of caused a splash by introducing these zero-fee um, index products. How's that worked out? And, well, it, it totally, I think, uh, shook the market up a little bit. Yeah. What their competitors say is, okay, if they're, not, if they're charging zero for these funds, 
where else are they making that up? Because it doesn't cost, you know, zero dollars to run a fund. Where are they making it up? So I'm. Th- that's the question. That's what we don't know. That's I what agree. We don't know. Yeah. So in various other ways, but okay. not on the fees. What do you see in four hundred one k's? I mean, I mean, John Bogle was a huge friend of the show. He gave us immense support uh, on Bloomberg on the economy and and Bloomberg surveillance. He said it always comes back to underfunded America. Yeah, I mean, he he was really a visionary in this area. He was one like of, eleven beeps visionary. Is what yeah, exa- call that. exactly. I mean, he was a pioneer in this idea that you can save investors all kinds of money by offering them index products. And you know, you know, he would say that active managers are very they, often yeah, not but, worth the fees and they and charge. They'd always say, "No, nah, it's going to change. It's going to change." And you're the the lead of your story in Bloomberg Business Week is it hasn't changed. Am I right? It's accelerated? That's right. It's been a trend that's accelerating. So it's an environment where you really have to either prove yeah. yourself, f- figure out a new strategy, maybe merge to survive, but um, it's looking bleaker and bleaker for active managers, yeah. especially the ones that can't beat their benchmarks. Annie, thank you so much. Annie Massa with Susie Wade and Christopher Cannon. It's a, a real nice summary step off to all the work we're going to see Paul in the fall yep. uh, in this year uh, on, on this struggle of asset management. It's tangible. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 